Blondie with hazel eyes. Anne-Marie Burr, at eight years old, was lively and good-natured. Her smile was legendary. She was big sister. Next in line was Julie, who was seven, Greg, five, and little Mary was three years old. The large Catholic family called the north end of Tacoma home, a tidy brick English-style bungalow, the kind of house the big bad wolf could not blow down. At least, that's what they thought on that hot August day in 1961. It was a Wednesday in the last week of summer vacation, then Labor Day and back to school. And on that day, sunshine had been muted by dark, foreboding clouds. The air had turned muggy when Anne-Marie came bounding through the door, begging her mother, Bev, for a sleepover at her friend's. But with summer winding down, the harried mother of four felt it was high time to tame her wily brood from the ad hoc summer routine, going to bed early in preparation for an early morning school schedule. So she nicks that sleepover. And oh, how that split second decision would later come to haunt her. The storm kicked into high gear, heavy rain hit the rooftop, wind howled. It was a batten down the hatches kind of night. That night, Anne-Marie was sharing a room with Mary, who was still nursing a broken arm. She started crying out for her mother, and Anne-Marie dutifully brought her little sister to her parents' room, where their mother soothed her, and then sent the girls back to bed. All was quiet, except Barney, the family dog, barking. But Bev and Don dismissed his cries, believing the storm was to blame for spooking the pooch. They had no idea that evil had entered the family home as they lay sleeping. At dawn, Bev awoke with a start, fear in her heart. Was it mother's intuition? She rushed to check on the children. Anne-Marie's bed was empty. She descended downstairs to the living room like a flash flood. The front door was ajar, the dining room window wide open. Outside, she noticed a garden bench had been moved from the backyard and placed beneath that open front window. Her heart thumped into high gear. Blood rushed into her ears. Where was Anne-Marie? Anne-Marie's father scoured the neighborhood. A construction site at nearby University of Puget Sound caught his attention, especially when he saw mounds of fresh dirt in piles around ditches and other excavated sites. A chill went up his spine when he observed a teenage boy kicking dirt into a ditch with his foot. Did that kid have a smirk on his face? Don begged the police to search the site, which they did four days later. But by then, everything had been filled in, and Anne-Marie was never seen again. What they didn't know was that surly teen just could have been Ted Bundy. So he was like 14 then and was known to ride his bicycle through the neighborhood. Anne-Marie's mother would later say she had not prepared her child for evil in the world. They had taught her that everyone was good. But how could any mother ever prepare their eight-year-old child for the evil, depraved, twisted teen hiding inside the package of the boy next door? The smiling, handsome, mild-mannered preppy 
who all the while, behind that mask, was scheming how to get away with abducting, sexually assaulting, and murdering young girls. It, it was like something had, say, snapped, that I knew that, that I couldn't control it anymore, that these barriers that had been instilled in me were not enough to hold me back with respect to seeking out and, and harming somebody. Carolyn Osorio with Kim Shepard, and this is the scene of the crime. That is a parent's worst nightmare. You know, you think when you have your children tucked in at home, cozy in their beds at night, you lock the front door, that you can go to sleep, that you can turn off that little voice in, in a mom's head that is constantly worried about what could be going wrong with her children. Like, you know, my, my kid's tucked in, the house is locked up for the night, the whole world has kind of gone to sleep, and I can rest. I think that's maybe the only time that I am not worried about my children is when I'm sleeping. And now I've given you something to worry about. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. But I was looking up some information on the likelihood of missing children being murdered, which is surprisingly unusual. In like 99% of the cases, when children go missing, they're not killed. They're found. That's which is good. Very good. Which is really good. But according to the Attorney General of Washington State, who conducted a study in 1997, they said in 74% of cases where the abducted children were killed, it happened within three hours of the abduction. So is this the scenario where you hear we've done these stories and it's like, well, we can't do a missing child's report until it's been a certain amount of time because 99 percent of the time they come back? Well, and that used to be the case. Those rules have really been changing in recent years. I mean, think about the Amber Alert that yes. we now have in place. It doesn't have to be a 24-hour situation. I think they might still have those rules for adults. But when it comes to children, the attorney general's report, the conclusion of it was the importance of parents calling police immediately. They said the biggest problem they had was that in most of these uh, child abduction cases, parents would wait at least two hours before calling the police because they would think, oh, maybe Johnny's over at a friend's house or maybe they just snuck out and they're down the street. You know, we'll find them. And so they do a little bit of, of looking around first before calling authorities. Mm -hmm. And so the takeaway from this report was if you call us within an hour, we're so much more likely to find your child and have it be a good outcome. Well, and in this case, I know that uh, Bev, she basically left the house, went and spoke to the neighbors, came back, and they immediately called the police. And but this... that's the thing. She left the house and talked to the neighbors first. Yeah. Not to put any blame no, no, on no. the mom no, no, whatsoever. No. Yeah, yeah. But like if there's one thing that mm -hmm. maybe could have been done differently, mm -hmm. it would be call the police immediately. Well, and I think that in this case, what I didn't include in that in the scene setter is that they had seen a peeping Tom in the neighborhood mm. as they were getting information. And so it's sad to say if this was Ted Bundy knowing what his MO now is, she didn't stand a chance. Yeah, so you know? many hindsight is 2020 mm -hmm. things in this case that, yeah, I mean, maybe things could have been done differently. But when it comes right down to it, there's there was nothing, nothing that anybody yeah. could have done. Yeah. So but first, let's go back in time to start at the beginning to tell this story, though. I had a lot of help 
My sources include the documentary Conversations with a Killer, the Ted Bundy Tapes, Cairo 7 TV, ABC News, the Seattle Times, and Wikipedia. So uh, we're going way back to November 24th, 1946. Theodore Robert Cowell was born to Louise in a home for unwed mothers in Vermont. Now, Louise was 22, and after giving birth, she goes back home to live with her parents in Philadelphia. And Theodore, or Ted, he's raised to believe that his grandparents are his parents and that Louise is his older sister. So Louise flees her parents' home when he was three years old. Life was tough in their home, but allegedly what prompted Louise to pack up and move to Tacoma, Washington, was a situation where Louise's sister woke up to find her bed covered in kitchen knives with three-year-old Ted smiling at the foot of her bed. What? Yes. At three years at old? Three that years is old. so crazy. Yeah. And I guess the, which I'm going to get into in a minute, but the, the grandfather who they were, you know, he was raising Ted as his son and the the grandmother was the mother. And then he thought that his real mother was actually his sister. Okay. So he, I guess, was this horrible guy. Terrible the grandfather. grandfather. Okay. Yeah. Who Ted later said that he identified. But that's such a zero to three. I mean, people could say, oh, well, it wasn't that long, but those are the, the, formative, the, the formative years. years. Yeah, and I was looking up, um, I was curious about this because I know that there was a lot of rage and, and trauma that was happening in the family. And so I was curious about what effects childhood trauma could actually have on the development of the brain. And I found this study from Dr. Michael DeBellis, who is with Duke University. And what he says is basically that those who experience a lot of childhood trauma are particularly prone to having chronic issues later in life, including PTSD, depression, anxiety, antisocial behavior, greater risk for alcohol and substance abuse. And the reasons for this are the changes in the brain structure that happens when you're in stressful situations, traumatic situations, your biology releases uh, cortisol and other um, hormones into your system that can not only impact your behavior in the moment, but when it's a brain that's still in the process of forming can actually impact how that brain forms and make you more susceptible to having flights of anger, flights of anxiety, antisocial behaviors. Well, and at three with the knives around the bed, like that. Clearly. <laughs> clearly we've got issues here. So the so his mom, who he still believes is his sister, um, they flee to Tacoma. They live with cousins for a while. So they have family and that's what basically led them to. So it was just a really chaotic home life. But then a bright spot in early 1951, Bundy's mom, Louise, marries a man named Johnny Bundy. And Theodore is given his new stepfather's last name. Johnny is described as everything Louise's father is not, caring, sweet, and loving. Bundy later thinks of him as an uneducated, poor, you know, he doesn't make a, a lot of money. And he's like really dismissive even though the husband is like totally awesome and treats the family really well and takes them camping, you know, Bundy kind of never really, they have four other children together and Bundy always kind of keeps himself on the outside of it. Well, and that's the other thing that early childhood trauma affects is the child's ability and later the adult's ability to form connections and bonds with other people. That is stunted in the brain when you have so much early childhood trauma. So I'm not surprised that he had a hard time feeling any kind of attachment toward his stepfather. 
But I think, though, that we get this impression, at least I do, where it's like, so we had the trauma at three, you know, up to three, where it was super chaotic. The, the grandfather, which we'll get into in a minute, was just completely psycho. But then he has this loving, you know, by all accounts, loving family. And so it, it gets back to that whole nature versus nurture. And you're, you're kind of like, I do, you can't erase the trauma that's been done by having a nurturing family. I mean, that three years of trauma changed his biology, changed his brain in a way that can't be undone by, okay, well, now you're around nice people. So just stop being this PTSD person. Like, mm-hmm. it just doesn't work that way. I mean, think about people who go to war mm-hmm. and come home, and now you're in a loving family environment. Why can't you just move on and put that behind you? Because it's not that simple. Yeah. When it comes to the brain, there's still so much we don't know. Yeah. But that's what the I think that's what you and I love trying to figure out. So in 1965, though, Bundy graduates from Woodrow Wilson High School in Tacoma. And then in the fall of 1965, he enrolls at the University of Puget Sound, that same school where Anne Marie's parents are convinced that Bundy buried her. So I talked to Clyde Steiger about Anne Marie's disappearance and presumed murder. And he says there are so many other cold cases that investigators are still trying to figure out if Bundy was responsible. People speculate yeah, and I I tend to agree that he probably did that one. I've actually I actually went down to I've been to his childhood home, and Anne Marie Burr's home, and you know it's he would ride a bike and it would it'd be like about a eight or ten minute bicycle ride from her house his house to her house, and then uh, there was a, a a shoe print outside her window, maybe a six, and he was like fourteen then, and that probably would have been about the size shoe he wore. So I mean that's you know those are the type of things and and. This guy's a notorious serial, serial killer that didn't live far away and was known to ride his bicycle through the neighborhood. And this little girl disappeared in the middle of the night. Of course, he denied that he did it. But, you know, that some serial killers will admit to some and not to others because they want to, you know, they don't want to be thought of as a child killer. Although he killed Kimberly Leach, who was 12 and was ultimately executed for. And I think he had another 12-year-old victim or something very close somewhere else but you know that's the way that's the thing it is it's just you know, there's a lot of cases that are ted bundy cases across this country that the pl- agencies have no clue that it's a ted bundy case because it's only one murder you know he's he's he drove clear across the country he went from here to vermont then down to florida and you know he was all over the place and he didn't just and he he would have stopped places and he probably killed all across this country and to that agency it's just it's just a single murder right we have this one unsolved murder they don't have any clue that has anything to do with Ted Bundy. So, Kim, you'll remember the voice of our favorite detective, Cloyd Steiger. The pimp detective. detective. It's such a pleasure talking to him because he's so curious. He is a retired Seattle police detective, and he's the author of the books Homicide, The View from Inside the Yellow Tape. I actually just ordered that. Uh, We're going on a camping trip, and I'm like, I think think it's time, right? (laughs) And then he also, of course, Seattle's Forgotten Serial Killer, Gary Jean Grant, which we did uh, an an episode on. Yes. And today, though, and this is where it you know, I was really happy to talk to him because today he's the chief gr- criminal investigator of the Washington State Attorney General's Homicide Investigation Tracking System. And, w- and what they do is they track all murders in Washington, Oregon, and Montana, as well as assist local agencies with homicide investigations, including cold case homicides. So he's and, in this knee deep. Yeah. And that's part of the reason why we wanted to do this case, even though, you know, Ted Bundy, everybody kind of knows who he is and what he did. And, you know, it's not exactly a news story, but 
Cloyd has such an interesting take and has so much knowledge about the cases that might be connected to Bundy that they haven't been able to, you know, definitively say mm-hmm. that we really wanted to talk about Ted Bundy, talk about these cases and talk about the ones that were you know, possibly connected, but they haven't yet figured that out yet, because I think that is really interesting. Well, and another one in Washington, and this is, and it's interesting, too, because these are all before his main killing spree. Like, these are when he is still really young. This is Ted Bundy, the prequel. Yeah, (laughs) yes. I mean, it's it's no joke. Like, in, in another case, it was a huge case. It was in the June of 1965. And Cloyd talks about this one, this this chilling case that they just didn't put together. I mean, how could they know? Two flight attendants that were uh, roommates in a house in Queen Anne, and they were asleep when somebody came in in the middle of the night and bludgeoned them with a board. It's very similar to Chi Omega, and bludgeoned them both severely. Uh, one of them died at the scene. The other actually survived because she had curlers in her hair, but she suffered brain damage and has no recollection of the event. And so, and that was a terrible crime. And, you know, that's, that's one over the years, people have speculated that Bundy could have done. And I tend to agree that he probably did do it. Like I said, he worked at the Safeway, not too far away. And it's exactly, basically the same MO as Kyomega down in Florida. It's really incredible that they now have these cases that they think might be connected. I know Cloyd is working with this state or national database on serial killers. I mean, is he able to get anywhere with these, like you looking at DNA to move these cases forward to actually see if there's a connection well, there? He, he brought up how they that this particular one, there's a picture of that bloody board and, you know, they're holding it without gloves, you know, the detectives and uh, stuff like that. So it's like, you know, it's before 1965, before they're even thinking about, I mean, DNA is so far away from being on the radar. But Cloyd says another interesting point about bringing up these early cases is that Although this is anecdotal, it's chilling because he spoke with a detective that worked that case, and it kind of shows Bundy's M.O. And he told me, because this guy's close to 90 years old now, he told me he was standing on this on the outside of the uh, perimeter when this young guy came walking up to him and said, hey, what's going on here? And he said, oh, it's a homicide. And he said, can I go in? And, no, no, you can't go in. And he says, the guy said, hi, I'm Ted, and shook his hand. And walked away. And he sure to this day, that was Ted Bundy. What? Yeah. I mean, it just shows the audacity that he had from an early age from a, a, to yes. think that he was just bulletproof in this way. <laughs> I know it is. Now, it was never confirmed that Bundy went to that, went back to that scene of the crime that day. But it surely fits his M.O. as they would later come to know. He was so brazen and so cocky. And, you know, and he thought. They could never tie it to him, and he was and he was obviously maybe right because it's been fifty some years later, and he's still not was never charged with that case, and it isn't cleared. But uh, that some people just are that way. Again, it's part of their psyche. It's not necessarily the whole killer comes back to the scene of the crime doesn't isn't necessarily true, but just because of the way Bundy was, it sounds like exactly something he would have done. So by the fall of 1966, we know that he was in the area. He'd moved to Seattle and is now attending the University of Washington. And from 1967 to 1968, here, another breadcrumb. He's in a relationship with a a girl named Stephanie Brooks, who breaks his heart. And it's worth noting that she closely resembles his future victims, which is 
long brown hair parted in the middle, and big hoop earrings. Apparently, this relationship ended because she thought he was sort of like drifting through life, and he lied, and he shoplifted. But this breakup really had an effect on Bundy, and it really upset him. On top of that, in early 1969, he visits the town in Vermont where he was born, and he learns that he is illegitimate. Cloyd says, coincidentally, a woman is found murdered very nearby. He was born, actually, in Burlington, Vermont, in like a home for unwed mothers, basically. And this girl lived like right next to that home and was found murdered when he was there, when he was probably there. I don't know if they got it linked down, but so he, you know, that, that's the thing. He's, he's been to that area. You can sh- show him in the area when the murder happened. It's a murder that matches his M.O. So they have not been able to definitively link that to him, though. It's still right. unsolved. Yeah, because you got to understand it's, again, one of the the one-off yeah. murders completely away from Washington, but it had the same M.O. I think she was beaten to death. So investigators say that Bundy, another piece to this puzzle, might have been fathered by his mother Louise's abusive and violent father, Samuel Cowell. Oh, so we're talking incest. Yes, we are. Now, I remember you talking about the rage issues that his grandfather or father had. I was actually curious about this. I looked up whether or not rage is hereditary. And there is a, uh, a doctor... Dr. Redford Williams, who's the director of behavioral medicine research at Duke University, who looked into this and he said, you know, it's been proven that prolonged periods of anger can do things like raise your blood pressure, your adrenaline, your cortisol levels. It can damage your immune system. And essentially it like attacks your body in a way that almost is like it's killing you when you get these really serious fits of rage. And so he wanted to study. Well, that's what they say. Stress can kill. Rage can. I mean, it's all it's all part and parcel to the same kind of emotion. Yeah. And what it does to your body. So when he did his research on this, he found there is a tiny molecular variation on a gene that is known to predict people who will have bouts of anger. Whether or not that genetic variation comes from your lineage, Mm -hmm. he hasn't been able to determine You know, is it something, is this genetic variation something that is like a fluke or is it something that you get from, you know, your mom or your dad or whatever? He wasn't able to determine that, but he said there is definitely something in your genes that can make you more prone to fits of rage. And uh, according to this paper that I was looking at, he, you know, was hoping to do some more research to determine just how closely it can be linked to heredity. Well, and it it sounds like Ted Bundy could be very close to the person who's the rager in the family. According to Wikipedia in 1987, Bundy and other family members told attorneys that Samuel Cowell was a tyrannical bully and a bigot who hated blacks, Italians, Catholics, and Jews, beat his wife and the family dog, and swung the neighborhood cats by their tails. He once threw Louise's younger sister, Julia, down a flight of stairs for oversleeping. And here's a key piece. He sometimes spoke aloud to unseen presences and at least once flew into a violent rage when the question of Bundy's paternity was raised. It sounds like it was a sore subject. Well, and talk about childhood trauma. If he was there or if he knew about, you know, that situation, how would that impact a little kid who's two or three years old to hear your father, grandfather or whoever it may be angry about the fact that they're your father? Yeah, I mean, I get that. But I mean, have you ever read The Glass Castle? I mean, it's just like the most traumatic 
but wonderfully written, amazing memoir. And it's like the the type of abuse that kids in that story underwent and poverty and conditions like and not just until they were three, like ongoing. I mean, it's just it was it's really hard to read, but it's one of those must reads. I, I just have a hard time with uh, the nature versus nurture. The I guess maybe I've just read into so much the story that I just can't even justify. And I'm not saying you're justifying his actions, but it's like he makes me sick. Like I don't I, I just can't. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I guess can't. my my desire to understand how he became the serial killer that he became is how do we keep this from happening again? How yeah. do we keep other kids from winding up in this situation that damages their brain in a way that they are prone to fits of rage? And No, and I'm glad you're thinking because I'm like in cavewoman mode where I'm just <laughs> like I can't think beyond like just – retribution after right. what he, what but i think that it's i'm so glad that we have people asking these questions and i'm glad to be talking with you about the questions right. but this is a great point to transition into advances in dna technology matter of fact i was involved in a uh, documentary pro- project a couple of years ago on him where they were because they had access to clothing and notepads from one of his previous attorneys and they were going to have that processed for DNA to see if there were the markers of incest in his DNA, you know, and, and they just decided at the halfway through production that they were going to instead focus on the victims and not on him. Uh, unless you had a sample from his grandfather, you couldn't definitely say his grandfather was his father, but there are markers in a DNA uh, genome that show an incestual relationship. Yeah. If they had DNA, they could definitely, you know, figure that out. But you mentioned that he moved to Tacoma with his mom when he was three? Mm-hmm. Was that his sister mom or his? That was his sister. I mean, that was his mom who, who he, he thought, thought was his sister. But when he was three and he moved to Tacoma, did he think he was moving with his sister? I think so. That's weird. Yeah. That doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't. I mean, so I, much I, of this doesn't I know. make sense. I, I looked, I mean, I looked because to me, that was a point where I was like, wait a second. It seems like, because especially when the his stepfather adopts him. There's inconsistencies. There's inconsistencies, but you heard Cloyd saying he didn't find out until later. And that's basically the narrative from all the stuff that I've read is that he really didn't find out that his sister was actually his mother until later. Hmm. Seems but like you a know, serious case of denial, but okay. Yeah, I mean, it was. And that's why he was really upset and angry that he this he was kept in the dark this whole time. Yeah, I mean I could I could definitely see where, you know, aside from the fact that the childhood trauma of having this father/grandfather who had this rage and was violent and perhaps, you know, mentally ill in more ways than one, that would be traumatic enough, but then to find out that you've also been lied to and yeah, I mean that's that's a lot. It's it's definitely a lot. But what was interesting, Cloyd and I had continued that conversation when you think about what does it mean to know if incest runs in your family? But and, and that's I mean, that's not an excuse for how he ended up. But he had a lot of deep anger about a lot of stuff in his upbringing and stuff. Like I said, he went back to Vermont to the unwed mother's home where he was born. And then coincidentally, while he's there, the lady lives, the girl lives in the house next door is murdered. Yeah, I mean, the guy's lashing out, losing control, angry, upset. And I don't know how far you want to go with this discussion, but one thing that stuck with me from a class on cultural anthropology was the idea of taboo. Yeah. Every culture in the world has some things that are taboo. And one thing that crosses cultural boundaries almost to 100% of the world is the taboo against incest. 
Yeah, it's up there with cannibalism. I think clearly it's happening a lot more than people want to admit. I mean, look at that case that we did with the Emery brothers, and people don't want to talk about it. So the interesting thing about taboos is that they do two things. They do minimize that behavior. So if there's a taboo against incest, society says incest is bad. People are generally pressured not to do it. And, you know, let's be honest, most people don't really want to do it anyway. But when it does happen, no one wants to admit it. No one wants to talk about it. It's hidden. It's put in the closet, shoved into the back, and nobody wants to. So a taboo, it's like a catch-22 where it's like, well, yeah, it makes people less likely to do that behavior. But it also makes it more likely that if they do the behavior, it's going to be hidden. It's going to be, you know, secretive. No one's going to want to talk about it or admit to it. And so it's weird in a way that it it works both kind of beneficially and non-beneficially for feeds, society. It feeds on itself. Yeah. What about the DNA aspect? Would you want to know if you had a marker for incest or would you rather not know? It depends on what would you do with that information. Is it something that would be helpful to you later on in life, like for your medical benefit? Is there a reason that you would need to know that or well, want to know that? You can't have any of the information. If somebody said to you, Kim, I have your your profile here. Do you want to know if you have incest in your family or not? You know, do you want to take the red or the blue pill? I mean, I, it just it's so much depends on the situation. I, yeah. I in my I think, you know, yeah. and I think everybody's different. Yeah, I don't think I'd want to know. I think I would if I was still in contact with any of the people that might have been involved. <laughs> I would go want raise to know. hell. <laughs> yes. Well, or just stay away from them. I mean, if if they're capable of that, I would want to know. So so I wouldn't bring my children around them. Mm-hmm. You know, so I guess it just depends. Well, I think in the future they will probably, you know, we can send off DNA and me one, two, three or whatever all yeah. those things are. Like I think in the future, you know, that that's that's coming up, mm. you know, so we'll see. Um, but anyway, back to the fall of 1969, we go and Bundy is at UW and he begins a long term relationship relationship with Liz, with Liz Kendall, who has a young daughter. So in 1970 and 19, from the years of 1970 to 1972, he is seriously living this double life. He was active in politics and also worked at the suicidal hotline with the famous true crime writer Anne Rule, who worked alongside him. I mean, at the time, she wasn't famous. She was, you know, she just, was just she Anne. was just Anne. Yeah. He was my partner at the crisis clinic in Seattle. And every Monday, or every Sunday and every Tuesday night, Ted Bundy and I were locked up all night long alone together in this big old Victorian mansion in the highest crime district of Seattle. And we were saving lives. And he would walk me to my car when I left at 3 or 4 in the morning and say, Ann, please be careful on the way home. Lock your doors. I don't want anything bad to happen to you. He was sympathetic. He had a gentle voice. He was so understanding, and he was good at keeping people alive. Anne would later go on to write The Stranger Beside Me about her time with Bundy. And Bundy also graduates from with a degree in psychology from the UW. And one could say that he wanted to use that knowledge to manipulate not only his victims, but the world, who in their wildest dreams could not imagine their friend, family member, co-worker, who he really was. But basically, Bundy had been educating himself on law enforcement for a long time. He was studying how the police caught killers, probably to be titillated, but also to understand. 
So this was before his first known murder? Well, nobody knows. See, that's the thing. He flew under the radar for so long, and he's trying to maintain this normal life. But that's the thing is it makes me think, like, he's already been killing people. Yeah, no, he's already been killing people. he's kind of like, okay, I better make sure that I'm doing this right if I want to keep doing this so that I don't get caught. Oh, yeah. That's been his—he's been doing that for a long time. But it's even more reason to think that some of these previously unconnected cases could be connected. Yeah. And the degree in psychology, like, yeah. you know, he's he's picking, you know, he's a quick study on how to maintain a normal life while he's a killing machine driving a Volkswagen bug. He fit into his surroundings so well, most people had no idea they had a predator in their midst. And in November 1973, he abducts and murders Kathy Devine from a street in Seattle. Her body is later found near Olympia. And I'm I'm including all of the the murders here just to kind of give you a chronology of of how rampant he is and brazen he is. In January 1974, Bundy attacks Joni Lenz in her apartment in Seattle. Amazingly, she survives. In February of that year, Bundy abducts and strangles Linda Ann Healy from her basement apartment in the U district. Now she is a well she is well known in the community for giving the weekday ski report on the radio. So, you know, these bodies again, it's like in different places, a couple of them are in Seattle or, or a few of them are in Seattle. In March of 1974, Bundy murdered Donna Gail Manson, a student at Evergreen State College. Now, that's in Olympia. Her body was never recovered. So, I mean, imagine this bug just driving all over all over the Pacific Northwest. And I just hear the engine. I, I know. Don't you? Yeah. <laughs> Everyone would know it was coming. Yeah. <laughs> But see, that's the that's the saddest part of all. They wouldn't know it was coming. They wouldn't know what was coming. They would know it was coming, exactly. but not what it yes. was. <laughs> so it, in April 1974, so it's like one a month, he abducts and kills Susan Elaine Rancourt, a student at Central Washington University. That's in Ellensburg. May 1974, Bundy abducted Roberta Kathy Parks from Oregon State University. He claimed to have sexually assaulted and killed her at Taylor Mountain. What? Wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, more than 25 miles southeast of Seattle. And where I am going as soon as we get done recording this. Oh, my. Are you going to ride kidding. your horse? Yes. That's where your horse is? I ride Taylor Mountain. Well, describe Taylor Mountain because that's one of his dumping grounds. Yeah, I mean, if you're familiar with Cougar, uh, not Cougar, but what is it? Um, Tiger Mountain. Tiger. I looked it up because I thought, did they write this wrong? No. Is it Tiger Mountain? So if you're familiar with Tiger Mountain, basically Taylor Mountain is the backside of Tiger Mountain. It's almost like it's little brother, where you have Highway 18 that runs in between the two. So to the west side of Highway 18 is Tiger Mountain, and to the east side of Highway 18 is Taylor Mountain. And Taylor Mountain, like Tiger Mountain, is completely evergreen trees as far as the eye can see, very secluded. And I can imagine back in the 70s, it was even more secluded than it is now. And now there there isn't anything up there. It's one of the largest uh, trail systems in the area, in the King County, kind of western Washington area. And that's why so many people go horseback riding up there is because there isn't anything up there. And and it's just really all trails and wilderness. So June 1st, 1974, Bundy abducted Brenda Carroll Ball from Burien. Her skull was later found at Taylor Mountain. So it's like you can see the pattern here where he's abducting them from a certain place and then bringing them to a completely different place. Yeah, that's nowhere near. I mean, that would take you probably an hour. Oh, I know. Well, in Olympia is like three hours away from Seattle. Um, Oregon State University. If you have a bug. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. So he's he's committed here and he has a plan. And where does he put his victims in that bug as he's driving them around? Well, I mean, are they I'm, in the back seat? I'm going to explain this to you. Okay. So in J- June 11th, 1974, Bundy would later describe years later, probably right before he was going to be executed, he would describe to Robert Capel, he was the original Seattle detective assigned to catch him, how he hunted and killed George Ann Hawkins, pulling one of his ruses that he would become infamous for in an alley near her UW sorority house. I was moving up the alley using a, uh, a briefcase and some crutches. And a young woman walked down, and about halfway down the block, I encountered her and asked her to help me carry the briefcase, which she did, and we walked back up the alley. Basically, when I reached the car, what happened was I knocked her, knocked her unconscious with the crowbar, and uh, I handcuffed her and put her in the driver's, I mean, the passenger side of the car and drove away. One of the things that makes it a little bit, well, among the things that makes it difficult is that uh, at this point she was quite lucid talking about things. It's, it's funny, it's, it's fun, funny, but it's odd the kinds of th- things people say in, under those circumstances. She had a Spanish test the next day and she thought that I had taken her to help tutor me for a Spanish test. It's kind of odd. The long and short of it was that that I, again, knocked her unconscious and strangled her. Can you hear that? The Hawkins girl's head was severed and taken up the road about 25 to 50 yards and buried in a location about 10 yards west of the road on a rocky hillside. By this time, it was almost dawn. But on this particular morning, I, I was just absolutely, again, just shocked, kind of scared to death, shocked, horrified. About, and I went down the road, throwing the briefcase, the, the, the crutches, the rope, the clothes, just tossing them out the window. And the crowbar, everything. Handcuffs, everything. I got to get mad at myself a few weeks later because I'd have to go out and buy another pair. I mean, it's not comical, but that's what would happen. This was just... I was in a, a sheer state of panic, of just absolute horror, you know. Uh, it's like, at that point in time, this consciousness of what has really happened is like, you break out of a fever or something, I would, that is. And uh, so I would. I drove, <laughs> talk about details coming back, I couldn't find one of the shoes, so I thought it was there, but it wasn't. So I went back, this was, a, this was the next day. Got on my bicycle, rode back to that little parking lot. I knew there were police all over the place by that time. So I went back to that parking lot and I found both pierced ear, the, the pierced earrings and the shoe laying in the parking lot. So I surreptitiously gathered them up and rode off. So there you are. That's Ted Bundy, right? That's yeah. the voice of Ted. Yes. What is he on? Because he sounds like he is on some serious medication. During that I'm discussion. sure he's probably like... Lithium or something. I, I have <laughs> no idea, but to me, it's like... The other thing I noticed is that he started to get more lucid and coherent as he was talking about the details of the 
crime. Not mm-hmm. the details of luring her, but the details of what he did after he got her. Well, and what's interesting in that interview, when you listen to the whole unedited, that was an edited version of it, but you have the um, detective asking questions, trying to have him admit to sexually assaulting her all night in the woods. And he just wouldn't go there. He just wouldn't, you know, he, he would always say these things. And, and as I was listening to all these different interviews, taped interviews um, of his confessions um, later, like, I mean, the guy's about ready to die. I mean, if you're hearing something in his voice, he's it's fear, it's, you know, all of his emotions. Oh, it just sounds up. like he's given up. <clears throat> he sounds like he has just given up and... and you know, why well, he, even bother drawing another breath? He's still at that point bargaining for his life. He's wanting to get that. He did not want to die up until the very end. He did not want to die. But he would always want he had to be in control of everything in these interviews. Like yeah. he didn't want to admit how he had sexually assaulted them all night long, what he had done, how he had done it. Did he ever admit to sexually assaulting any of his victims? He did to some of them, but he okay. wouldn't go into, and this isn't to go into detail, like what, tell us all the gory details, but but it's like. It, I, it, I, I think it's interesting if he's willing to admit to certain things and not others. Like yes, why, why yes. would he be willing to admit to this horrific crime, but not sexual assault, which I mean also is horrific, but it's not worse than murder. And, and that's what Cloyd <laughs> was saying. Some of these guys will admit to some, but won't admit to others, no matter what. It almost makes me wonder about the idea of the way that he came into the world and the incest and the situation with his mom slash sister and father slash grandfather. If there wasn't some kind of sexual deviancy, maybe he felt like, and I don't, again, grasping at straws, trying to understand the mind of a killer, which is impossible, but... I wonder if it could have been something where he could admit to rage, he could admit to murder, but the idea of admitting to sexual deviancy was just something he couldn't do because of his history. Listening to his interviews where he's like, he'll he'll gloss over it. And he's like, you know, we don't have time now to go into those deeper caverns. And you can tell he's trying to control, control the narrative, control the situation. I mean, who knows? Like what some people think is perfectly normal that I'm a complete weirdo and other people think like you know what I mean it's like I think it's the individual person where their shame boundary lines are we you know but but that's the interesting part is like how he views himself how he views his crimes how he views his his personality and his, his choices it's not about whether this is right or wrong or good or bad or did he do it or did he not do it it's about how does he view himself and how does his perception of himself affect his choices that he makes. Well, and it's and it and it helps to know like that's why this is a long cut to include, but it it showcases his MO, how he loved to game the system. A former friend explained Bundy was watching a news report about one of his murders. And this was before he was caught and he bragged to his friend there right there. He said that he would know how to get away with killing someone. He explained, "You pick the woman up in one county, throw away her clothes in another and leave her body in another county because different counties would mean law enforcement was less likely to talk with one another. And so that is... And he was so right. I mean, we've seen this in our cases that we covered up until this point. Anything that happened before, let's say 2000, Mm -hmm. chances are very good that the agencies were not talking to each other. Yes. And so up until this point, his M.O., and the police are not making the connections to one suspect or person of interest in all these murders... That will change in July 1974 when Bundy's compulsions are ramping up and would lead to mistakes. 
So every summer, there's a fun event on the shores of Lake Sammamish State Park, which is really close to Taylor Mountain. Folks, young and old, would gather to play games and have fun. Bundy was there for a different reason, trolling for young women to sexually assault, torture, and murder. This time, he had his arm in a sling, pretending to be injured, and needed help loading his sailboat onto his vehicle. So in separate incidents, Janice Ott and Denise Nasland were abducted from Lake Sammamish State Park. He was a cunning schemer, but he made mistakes in this brazen killing of two young women at Lake Sammamish between the hours of 10 a.m. and 4.30 p.m. When police investigated, they talked to someone who heard Janice Ott say, Hi, I'm Jan. And the preppy-looking man with the distinctive sling, shorts, and button-down shirt replied, Hi, I'm Ted. So he gave his real name. The last time she was seen was pushing her bike as he walks alongside her. So witnesses are now able to give a composite sketch, and the man's car is a tan Volkswagen Bug. Each lead has to be followed. Every phone call has to be made. Most lead nowhere. Some pan out with a speck of information that may someday help clear up the mystery of the whereabouts of Janice Ott and Denise Naslin. So this is a cut from ABC, and what's really intriguing, and and I don't want to say great, but it's like they finally have people and leads to chase down and try to figure out what happened. They still haven't connected these two crimes to the other women, but they at least have a situation where they can start piecing together some pieces here. I also think it's interesting that he killed two women, relatively same place, same time, It's like he wants people to figure out that he's a serial killer, because if he just had killed one woman at Lake Sammamish, likely the police again would think this is a one off, maybe not connected with any other cases. I think that it's both. It's two things. He's both brazen and thinks he's smarter than everybody. Yeah. And two, he is becoming unhinged with his compulsions. It's all he thinks about. He's you know, he's getting further away from this dual life. You know, he's two sides of a coin. He knows how to pretend But now these lives are splitting. You know, he can't control it like he did. And in an interview later, when Bundy was asked about the murders of Ott and Nasland, he told investigators that Ott was still alive when he kidnapped Nasland and one was forced to watch as he murdered the other. There's something about the idea of like him wanting to get caught. He's a thrill seeker. He wants to see how close to the edge he can get, but still pull back. Like, how close can I get to them figuring out it's me without actually being caught? You Mm -hmm, know, but mm -hmm. that's going to be his downfall. I mean, the the thing that I keep sure right. The thing that I keep hearing, too, that that I'm, I'm wondering about is he keeps using this VW bug. Serial Killer 101, switch things up so they don't connect your crimes. Mm -hmm. And here he is using this same vehicle over and over and over again. So in September of 1974, the body parts of Ott and Nasland and Hawkins are recovered two miles from Lake Sammamish in a wooded area. After the Sammamish killings, Bundy knew if he wanted to keep killing young women, he would need to move to another state where they weren't looking for a suspect named Ted who drove a VW Bug. So he moves to Utah. And guess what happens? Fall of 1974, Bundy enters the University of Utah Law School. And in October of that same year, Bundy murdered Melissa Smith and Laura Amy. In November of 1974, he messes up again. He tries to abduct Carol Duranch from a shopping mall. And here is a newscast explaining what happened during that time. 
Carol DeRange parked a car in this parking lot at the Fashion Mall. Shortly after began what she now calls her personal nightmare. Bundy, posing as a police officer, approaches a young DeRange. He tells her that they've apprehended a suspect who was trying to break into her car. He said they would have to go down to the main Murray Police Department to sign a complaint. DeRange entered the abductor's car. She jumped out of the car. The man jumped out, waving what looked like a crowbar. She broke loose, ran to the street, flagged down a passing car, and an elderly couple drove DeRange to the Murray Police Station. The search for her abductor began. It's so funny, the, the style of it. You can tell what era it's from, <laughs> yeah, which is kind of sure. cool. I mean, well, it was from a different time. People are not used to these types of crimes back then. They have described it so much in Washington, how Seattle and Washington was known as like no crime. But man, the were they wrong. How many serial killers did we have under wraps that we just didn't know about? Yeah, yeah. But there's still this. These are shocking events. Yeah. And then again, back to his obsession. He fails to get killed Durant, and then that same day, he abducts Debbie Kent from her school in Bountiful and kills her. But botching the abduction of Durant, Utah is now looking for Durant's kidnapper. They don't know anything about Ted Bundy, They, but she does have a description and, of course, the car. And did he call himself Ted again? <laughs> She didn't even get that far. Okay. Yeah, I don't think she, I don't think so. But can I just put out there, too, that like if you're a detective looking to help somebody out, you're probably not driving a VW bug. But well, well, and that's what she said. The way she did smell alcohol in his breath, which made her suspicious. But then when she saw his car, she was like, oh, well, he's undercover. So these things that we mm. do to kind of like our hackles are raised, but we kind of talk, try to talk ourselves out of it. We don't want to think that people are that evil or we want to see the best in people a lot of times. Well, yeah. And I, and I think that he was so quick about it. Like the second she was in his car and they were driving and, and she was like, hey, wait a second. The, the police station's over there. He's starting to try to handcuff her and there's no door handle. Wow. I mean, they were up against a, a seasoned killer by this point. But botching the abduction of Durant, Utah is now looking for her attempted abductor. Bundy looks for victims in a new killing field, trolling ski resorts in Colorado, where, of course, he's going to fit in. Okay, but a VW Bug is like the worst vehicle to use at ski resorts in Colorado. (laughs) Yes, but he's going to fit right in. And there's people from all different states that come to ski resorts. And, you know, he's just going to slide right in, right under the, the, you know, the radar. In March 1975, he abducts Karen Campbell from a hotel in Aspen, Colorado. Her body is found a month later in February. So now March 1975, Bundy abducted and killed a ski instructor named Julie Cunningham from Vail, Colorado. Her body was never found. April 1975, Bundy killed Denise Lynn Oliverson from Grand Junction, Colorado. He said he left her body in the Colorado River, but, but she was never recovered. May 1975, Bundy kidnapped and drowned Lynette Don Culver, his youngest victim, 12, in a bathtub, then later said he discarded her body in the Snake River and her remains have never been found. I do want to point out that Grand Junction and Vail and the ski resorts are several hours away from each other. Yeah, so he's, he's doing his driving all over thing. the place. Oh, yeah. And he's supposed to be in law school at this time. And so they're notably he's like missing a lot of school and he gets warnings that, hey, you know, you're going to fail my class. I'm not going to let you take the test. And he goes and schmoozes the his law professor. And so he goes back to Utah in between. 
to take these classes? Oh yeah, he's still he's still at the university. That's he's a still lot in law of school. driving. He, yes, he's driving, obsessing. He's like a shark. So June 1975, he kidnaps and kills Susan Curtis, 15. And she was at uh, BYU at a youth conference. I mean, she's in middle school. In July 1975, he abducts and kills Shelley Robertson from Golden, Colorado. Three days later, he abducts and kills Nancy Baird from Leighton, Utah. But on August 16th, 1975, Bundy's luck runs out. Utah Police Sergeant Bob Hayward notices... Bundy's tan 1968 Volkswagen parked outside of a home at 3 a.m., and Sergeant Hayward knew there were two young women that lived there. When Hayward approached, Bundy took off like a bat out of hell, and of course, Sergeant Hayward gave chase, eventually pulling him over. And after a brief struggle, he made a chilling discovery while searching that car. Earlier, you'd asked me about what he does and how he does it. The passenger seat was out of Bundy's car so it was gone and he's like what's up with your passenger seat and he's like oh you know it's broken so he had removed it completely and he saw that Bundy and he did not know this but his kill kit which was there which included an ice pick handcuffs a ski mask pantyhose with holes cut for the an eyes and a mouth gloves ripped sheet flashlight trash bags I mean it was just like a horrible scene it's like a serial killer's yeah, it's his beginner kit. kit. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it, yeah. it's it's hard to believe that the the sergeant didn't put those pieces together, or did he? Well, they started to. He brought Bundy in for evading for evading arrest, but he got bailed out the next day. But unable to shake that experience, Hayward talked to the sheriff, who happened to be his brother. Then they talked to detectives who thought Bundy and his VW sounded familiar. Mm. And, you know, they, they're starting to put the pieces together. They reach out to Washington State where they found out that Bundy or Ted was on a short list of suspects for murders in Washington and that the murders had coincidentally stopped uh, when Bundy relocated to Utah. So in October 1975, Bundy was identified in a lineup by Carol DeRanche, the one that got away. Mm. He was arrested and charged with aggravated kidnapping and attempted criminal assault. He was held in Salt Lake County Jail, but he gets out of bail, and in February 1976, he kills Debbie Smith in Utah. And here, Bundy is in the spotlight for the first time in his trial. So up until this point, you know, he's maintaining this double life, although it's teetering toward, you know, his obsessions. And he's still in law school? He's still in law school, mm. yeah. But during this trial for the kidnapping attempt of, of Durant, he comes out and talks to the media, and he's like a pompous prince wrongly accused. How do you feel about the justice system in general based on your <laughs> Well, I'm sure it works, and you've got to have faith it'll work, or else you'd be, you'd be reduced to some kind of, uh, you know, mumbling idiot. Uh, I believe it works. I believe it needs to be improved. When you mention improvements, does that mean uh, ultimately you want to uh, get involved in the criminal justice system? Well, <laughs> yes, I intend to complete my legal education and become a lawyer and uh, be a damn good lawyer. He's like this preening prima donna. He's laughing at everyone. He's yeah. laughing at the system. He's laughing at the sergeant and everyone who's trying to put him behind bars. He's laughing at his victims. It just, to me, it feels like he is 
laughing at the entire world that he's getting away with this. Well, fortunately, Bundy insisted on testifying on his own behalf and came across, surprise, surprise, as an arrogant asshole. (laughs) And he was convicted of never a truer word. (laughs) Yeah. So he was convicted of the kidnapping charge on March 1st. He was sentenced to a minimum of one to a maximum of 15 years in Utah State Prison. But this was just the beginning. As I said before, Washington, Colorado, and Utah were getting on the same page, and the consensus was that Bundy was looking good for all the murders that were going on of young women, but how to prove it. One way, combing through his VW, Utah investigators found hairs around the stick shift of the Volkswagen of victims from Colorado and Utah, which gave them enough evidence for them to file charges against him on October 1976. Now, this was before DNA, though. Mm-hmm. So how were they able to connect the hair to the victims? Was it just like a type matching? I like think a... it was like a type matching, whatever they had to say. Yeah, this is this. It wasn't DNA, but it was enough to say yeah. these hairs belong to. It was probably that plus other circumstantial the evidence. The kill cat. The, <laughs> the kill, kill kit. Yeah, the yeah. kill cat. No. Yeah, the kill cat. Well, yeah, I mean, it's probably one of those where they could prove he was in the area. They could prove, you know, other things. And so that hair just kind of was the tipping point of Oh, yeah. Making it it their was case. completely the tipping point. And it was enough for them to file charges on the mur- first degree murder of Karen Campbell. And he was transferred to Colorado. In January 1977, Bundy was transferred to Aspen. And remember, in the kidnapping case in Utah, he had an, an attorney representing him. But in Colorado, he was assisting in his defense, which gave him access to the law library that was upstairs. And the judge ordered that he was free to use the library and was not to be shackled or handcuffed. Essentially, he was free to move about. And he escaped in June 1977. He literally jumped out of the second story window of the courthouse. On June 13, 1977, Bundy is caught in Aspen. Over the next six months, he started losing a bunch of weight. But he's scheming again. It's not because he feels guilt for what he's done. He's scheming to escape. Sitting in his jail cell, he realizes that if he removes the ceiling light and if he loses enough weight, he can actually fit through. So he makes his way through the crawl space to the jailer's apartment near his cell. He jumps down into the, the apartment knowing that the, uh, you know, the, the jailer isn't going to be there. He puts on regular clothes and escapes. And he had a 12-hour lead before they realized he was in the wind. Mm. Talk about all the things that we've talked about before, about how he, his obsessions, he was, wanted to do whatever he wanted to do because he could have dropped off the face of the earth, but he chose not to do that. He boarded a plane and flew to Chicago. Then he took a train to Ann Arbor, Michigan. And then for the next leg of the journey, he stole a car and drove to Atlanta and then took a bus to Tallahassee, Florida. He signed a rental agreement at a building called The Oaks and began his next reign of terror that he would later refer to as his barbaric state. Within two months while on the run, he would attack five people, murdering three of them. On January 15, 1978, at 3 a.m., Bundy crept inside the Chi Omega sorority house near Florida State. He savagely beat and strangled Margaret Bowman and Lisa Levy to death. Karen Ann Chandler and Kathy Kleiner suffered severe injuries after he bludgeoned them while they slept, but they survived. On that same day, Bundy broke into the apartment of Cheryl Thomas, a student at FSU, and he attacked her. 
Bundy took off when her roommates heard noise and called out to her. When she didn't answer, they called police and Thomas survived the attack, but Bundy was in the wind again. On February 9th, 1978, he abducts 12-year-old Kimberly Leach from her school in Lake City, Florida. Leach was one of Bundy's youngest victims. It was his last murder. On February 15, 1978, he is pulled over by the Pensacola police when an officer sees a man at 1.30 a.m. driving a stolen Volkswagen in Pensacola. He, what? He went back to the bug? I, I what is with I, him and the bugs? You know what? I don't know, but obviously, I know. It's like one of the... It's like a compulsion. It's, yeah. He can't help himself. I mean, obviously, but... It's funny that that would be one of his compulsions. Yeah. So they take him into custody. Was it tan? <laughs> I <laughs> don't know. That's okay. But for the next two days, Bundy refuses to give his name. And and they don't know who they're dealing with. They have no idea. I mean, we're talking Florida. It's this I, whole well, I'm MO. Wondering, do they even have fingerprinting at this point? Yeah, they do. Seven, okay. I think so. Yeah. I think so they're so. going to eventually figure out it's him, even if he doesn't. Yeah, finally he gives his name as Theodore Robert Bundy, and he's probably all like, you know, just cocky as hell and just thinks he's so great. But in short order, the Florida police would find that Bundy, only a week earlier, had been put on their the FBI's 10 most wanted list. And it's interesting, again, we see Ted Bundy's theatrics in July of 1978 when he's in custody. And it was just a really weird exchange. Like, Bundy comes out of this elevator and he doesn't have any handcuffs on or anything like that and he stands like right by the uh sheriff as the sheriff read the indictment in the chi omega murders it's just weird what do we have here Ken? let's see you always say an indictment all right why don't you read it to me you're about well, for election aren't you mr bonnie got it didn't you mr bonnie told me that you told him that you were going to get me he said he was going to get me. okay you've got the indictment it's all you're going to get let's read it let's go Theodore Robert Bundy, you are charged, indictment, two counts burglary, two counts murder in the first degree, three counts attempted murder in the first degree. Design or intent to affect the death of said Lisa Lee. My chance to talk to the press. Contrary to section 78204, Florida statute. I'll plead not guilty right now. Yeah, wow. Yeah, it was really bizarre. Why wouldn't the sheriff be like, get him out of here? <laughs> I think that I think that was everybody's question even during that during that time. Like, why would you why would you do this? I mean, it just didn't really make sense. But again, so many things about Ted Bundy and what he's allowed to do and gets away with. Well, it could be also that the sheriff knows Bundy's going to make an ass out of himself and wants the whole world to see this guy for who he truly is. I don't know. I mean, I would I mean, that that's a that's a cup is half full. Yeah. I mean, I feel like he probably got gamed by Bundy as much as I hate to say it. I don't want to give him any credit, but I mean, it just makes them both look like what? So Bundy went on trial for two counts of first degree murder, as you heard. This time he's representing himself. And this is where it just gets so. He's a like, fool for a client. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's it's strange because he's referring to himself in the third person, calling himself Mr. Bundy. Watching court videos from that time, it's surreal. He's like prancing around court, talking to the judge like he's a seasoned lawyer, wearing a tweed jacket, a button-down shirt, deep blue. It's a deep blue shirt, the kind with the huge lapels, over a white Seattle Mariners sweater. It's sort of playful nod, I guess, to his Washington roots. 
I mean, he's not acting like I mean, these are serious crimes that, you know, have major consequences. There's the death penalty in Florida. There's not the death penalty in Washington, like why he chose to go and and uh, murder there. I mean, some have to wonder, like what I you was were wondering, earlier. what's his connection with Florida? I, he... I don't know. So the other thing that that I've been thinking about as you've been sharing, you know, the information about his behavior is the fact that he did have that degree in psychology. Mm hmm. I wonder if there's something to the the idea that if you act like somebody who is guilty of these crimes, you're more likely to be found guilty. Whereas if you act like this is so ludicrous, there's no way that I did these things. Maybe people would buy into that. Maybe that's why he was acting so strangely and uh, flippant about I, the charges. I think it's all with his dynamic that we've seen all along, like before if you looked at that and there weren't all these heinous crimes that he's now people are like, yeah, I, I, he could have done. I mean, for a long time, there's so many people that knew him that were like, there's no way that he did this. I right. mean, even though they talked about Ted with a with a tan Volkswagen, so many people in Washington knew there's a Ted with a Volkswagen. They still couldn't believe there were so many Volkswagens could, in the day. There, there was. But it was like his persona was larger than life. Well, another twist in this very twisted case is how many women would flock to the trial dressed, you know, to the nines and many dressed as his type. Because by this time, you know, he is like a media sensation. Everybody's talking about it. They know that he has a predilection for women with long hair, brown hair, parted down the middle with hoop earrings. And there's a name for this bizarre phenomenon. It's called hybristophilia. And what's interesting here is he ended up proposing to one of his fans, Carol Boone, and she came to testify on his behalf as a character witness. Carol, do you want to marry me? Yes. And I want to marry you? Yes. And I do want to marry you. <laughs> so he says, do you want to marry me? Yes. Do I want to marry you? Yes. And then what is the last question? And then he says something, and I really do. I do really do want to marry you. Wow, that's so romantic. So what's even more, <laughs> another, you know, they're not supposed to be able to have sex according to, you know, because he is, you know, a suspect. In and has multiple. escaped twice. Yeah. But at some point, they end up consummating their marriage and she conceives a child named Rose Bundy during one of her visitations. How would you like to be that child? Uh, you know what? I mean, I'd change my name. I'm sure she does. I mean, what a legacy to give your kid. I mean, you want to go on to, to have your life, but it's like you can't be president. You can't be, you know, there's so many things that are preordained. I mean, they could be, but society wouldn't let them. Right. That's the thing. Exactly. It's the, it, going back to the taboo of it. You yeah. know, your dad's a serial killer. Could any of that have been passed along to you? Because if there's even a possibility, no one's going to want to have anything to do with you. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting, though. I, I thought you'd like this. One of Bundy's attorneys, former attorneys, John Henry Brown, which. You, oh, yes. Yeah. I know, Mr. Brown. Yeah. So um, he's a prominent Seattle attorney who briefly worked with Bundy. And he described Bundy's folly in taking the stand as a fatally narcissistic miscalculation in his book, The Devil's Defender. Quote, Ted believed he could lie his way out of anything and could charm the judge, writes Brown. He was wrong. So what we were talking about earlier, why was he doing this? Why was he acting all flippant and like, you know, leaning into his like 
larger than life persona is good, you know, boy next door kind of thing. Yeah, I'm a good natured guy and I would never do these horrible things. Yeah. So in May 1979, Bundy actually rejected a plea deal that would have allowed him to avoid the death penalty if he admitted to murdering Bowman, Levy and Leach. He, he didn't take it. I think he thought that he could get somehow get away with it. Hmm. On July 24th, 1979, and later in February 1980, two Florida juries would convict Bundy on two counts of first-degree murder, and later he was convicted for another first-degree charge for murder of the Levy, Bowman, and Leach murders. Before he was sentenced, the judge asked if he wanted to say anything. I'm not asking for mercy. For I find it somewhat absurd to ask for mercy for something I did not do. So I will be tortured for and will suffer for and receive the pain for that act. But I will not share the burden. Yeah, he's the victim here. And fortunately, he didn't get mercy, citing the savagery of the crimes and Bundy's callous attitude. This court independent of, but in agreement with... The advisory sentence rendered by the jury does hereby impose the death penalty upon the defendant, Theodore Robert Bundy. Then in a shocking statement, the same judge, Edward Cowart, added this. Take care of yourself, young man. Thank you. I, I say that to you sincerely. Take care of yourself. It's a tragedy for this court to see it's such a total waste, I think, of humanity that I've experienced in this court. You're a bright young man. You made a good lawyer. I'd love to have you practice in front of me, but you went another way, partner. That's disgusting and disturbing, and I almost feel like that judge should be disbarred. For showing any sense of humanity to somebody who has committed such awful crimes, I understand his way of thinking and why he might have had those thoughts, but it's totally inappropriate to express them out loud, especially in a public setting where there's, you know, recording happening. Just so inappropriate, so disrespectful to the victims and their families. Yeah. Incredible. Well, the fact that he, even though he'd seen all the evidence and everything, had been charmed by Bundy. I mean, that's basically what happened there. Even after everything that he'd seen. I just think the judge may have been a little bit like me, where he wants to understand how Bundy became this person when he was a smart guy, when he was, you know, kind of an all-American kid. I mean, that's where I had to stop you earlier in it, because I'm normally like so with you on that, like trying to understand why people do what they do. But in this particular case, after getting beginning to end and listening to the cuts and listening and listening In this case, it's more of like, how can we stop this? But I don't, there was no way of stopping it. Right. And and there's a time and a place for that kind of reflection. Mm -hmm. The courtroom immediately after he's convicted is not the time and or the place. Every time I hear that, it's like, why would he say that? I I would love to go back and be able to ask him, but he's probably not around anymore. No, probably not. Okay. So Bundy finally starts admitting to stuff trying to save his own neck. So while in death row, Bundy gives a series of interviews and he reached out to other serial killers. He wanted to get pen pals. He even contacted, I don't know if you'll remember this, but when we did the Green River Killer case, Mm -hmm. he contacted uh, Detective Reichert at the time, who then later became the King County Sheriff and ultimately caught Gary Ridgway. 
But anyway, he reached out to him and said that he could help him catch the river man. Like he, you know, Reichert would later describe that he felt like, you know, Bundy was almost like jealous of the attention that the Green River killer was getting. I could also see where he might want to try to get a hold of some of the crime scene evidence, some of the pictures and things mm-hmm. so that he could live vicariously through this person who was still going out committing crimes, murders very similar to what he would do. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that was interesting is that he he really recommended that the King County Sheriff's Office stake out one of the places where they found the bodies because he was sure that Ridgeway would go back, or the Green River Killer, because they didn't know who it was at the time, would go back and engage in necrophilia. And it's interesting because during that time, when he's trying to bargain for his life and talking to different you know, investigators, and he explains the necrophilia part, which he engaged in. Well, I went back the next day, and I went back about three days later to do that business that we talked about earlier. And it was a, sort of a crude attempt to disguise the identity, identification of the remains as such. I don't know, it wasn't, in retrospect, it doesn't, it sounds pretty incoherent, but that's what was motivating it. Uh, and then maybe about a week to two weeks later, I went back for a third time, again, just to see what was going on. Uh, but of course, after, you know, in June, after a week, it's, you know, what with all the local the wildlife, but there's not much left. You know, there's a lot of psychological stuff going on here that we just don't have time for. I mean, we've just been days explaining. I do. And this is why I'm so keen on the staking out of crime scenes of this type afterwards. Fascination with that, necrophilia, all that. See, he wouldn't come right out and say what he was doing to the bodies. He has to control how he shares it, the look on your I'm face just, right now. I, I know. can't get over going back after a week or more after mm-hmm. this person's been murdered, left out mm-hmm. in the wild. Who mm-hmm. knows what animals have come along and taken bits and pieces. I just, it's shocking to me that he would still be interested in wanting to go back to the crime scenes. Because I'm sure it happened more than once that he did this. Oh, yeah. So he knew going in what it would look like. And he still wanted to go back and be a part of that. Yeah. It's just, it's mind-blowing to me. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that that's why he wants to control it, because he knows that nobody's going to really understand except for someone like Gary Ridgway. Yeah. You know, and that's why he can tell some of it to get attention. You know, he's got he's to talk a little bit to keep people interested in him. And, you know, he really doesn't want to confess to these things. It's a way to try to get him off the hook of this upcoming, you know, he's in Florida, but he's trying to save his neck. So he starts talking more. On January 21st, 1989, over the course of several days, Bundy confesses to multiple agents from different agencies. He tells the FBI agent Bill Hagmeyer he's killed 30 people in California, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Utah, Colorado, and Florida between 1973 and 1978. But by, you know, January 23rd, it's not changing the course that's already happening. He's had a couple of stays of execution, which bought him a little bit more time, but time has has run out. In his last interview, the night before his execution, he spoke with Dr. James Dobson and is going all out for a Hail Mary because you got to remember two of the stays of execution happened. One was 15 hours before Mm. and the other was like seven hours. So he's really still not doing this for the victims. He's still doing this. I mean, from from my 
point of view yeah. for himself. He still thinks he's got a shot yeah. at another stay. So he doesn't he says he doesn't want to die, but pornography was a factor in what made him what he was. What I'm trying to tell you as honestly as I know how what happened, and I think this is a message I'm gonna get across. But as a young, uh, a young boy, and I mean the boy of uh, 12 or 13, certainly, uh, that I encountered outside the home again uh, in uh, the local grocery store, the local uh, uh, drugstore, the softcore pornography, what people call softcore. Um, but as I think I, I explained to you last night, Dr. Dobson, in an anecdote, that as young boys do, we explored the the back roads and sideways and byways of our neighborhood and oftentimes people would dump the garbage and whatever they were cleaning out of their house and from time to time we'd come across so he's like we he's like normalizing it than, uh, who comes across pornographic books in their Unless neighborhood you're looking is, for it no but even if you're looking for it it's not something somebody just dumps on the side of the road yeah, apparently he had a neighbor i think that did detective magazines and uh, those that involve part. violence. Yes, yes, yeah. and I, 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 and this is something I think I want to emphasize is the, 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 the most damaging um, uh, kinds of pornography. And my, again, I'm talking from personal experience, uh, hard, real personal experience. The most damaging kinds of pornography are those that involve violence uh, and sexual violence. Because the wedding of those two forces, as, as I know only too well, brings about behavior that is just, uh, is just uh, too terrible to describe. Now walk me through that. What was going on in your mind at that time? Okay, before we go any further, I think I mean, it's important to me and, uh, and the people, the people believe what I'm saying to tell you that that I'm not blaming. Pornography, and not saying that it caused me to go out and do certain things, and I take full certain responsibility things for whatever I've done. No, you don't. That I've done. That's not the question here. The question, and, and and the issue is how this kind of literature contributed and helped mold and and shape the kinds of violent behavior. It fueled your fantasies. Well, in in the beginning, it fuels this kind of thought process. Then, it, at a certain time, it's instrumental in what I would say crystallizing it, make it in, making it into something which is almost an, like a separate entity inside. And that in, at that point, you're at the verge, or I was at the verge of acting out on this on this kind of these kinds of things. Now, I really want to understand that you had gone about as far as you could go in your own fantasy life mm -hmm. with printed material, and you made or printed and video or film Fo or film magazines yeah. what have you yeah. and and then there was the urge to take that little step or big step over to a physical right. uh, event and it happens it, it happened in stages gradually it doesn't necessarily not to me at least happen overnight my experience with I say pornography generally but with pornography that deals on a violent level with sexuality um, is that once you become addicted to it, and I look at this as a kind of addiction, uh, like other kinds of addiction, of addiction, you keep, I would keep looking for more potent, more explicit, yeah, more graphic kinds of material. Like an addiction, you keep craving something which is harder. harder okay, can we just be done? Like, I can't yeah. even listen to him anymore. Mm -hmm. It is so ridiculous. He is basically 
picking and choosing things from a psychology textbook and molding them to his situation to try and convince this psychiatrist, psychologist, that well, he that has certain reasons. You, you've hit it on the head, and that's really why I wanted these longer cuts, because you can see where he loses it and that protective coding or whatever of him controlling the narrative, trying to sound like he's intelligent, trying to woo the person he's talking to. And it's like a part of that toxic manipulation that he was so well known for. He's still manipulating. The other thing I noticed is that he's trying to compartmentalize the part mm-hmm. of his personality who is de- that is deviant mm-hmm. as not really being him, not really who mm-hmm. he truly is. It's, oh, yeah. it's this deviant part of his personality mm-hmm. that is is like separate. Mm-hmm. So I can see his thought process of, well, you can't kill me. I didn't really do this. It's this deviant side of me that mm-hmm. I don't really like, that I wish I didn't have, that, you know, I want to get rid of. Please help me get well, rid and, of and, this. And in the earlier cut where he was dr- describing Hawk Ann's, how he went about murdering her, he describes it as being in a fever. You know, like this wasn't he's in a fugue state. He's not in the driver's seat. Right. When he absolutely is in the driver's seat. So as you can imagine, outside the Florida prison where Bundy would be executed, there was a huge, huge media present detailing the execution from outside the prison, step by step, what was happening when the people showed up. They signed a release war, you know, a, a release form, and they you know got into this van and were driven up. You know, the whole have you I ever done say, that? No, as a reporter, no. Have I've you been? Yeah. Who? God, you know, it's, what's terrible is I don't even remember who it was. I'm sure you blocked it out. I probably. I was working yeah. as a reporter in Colorado. Okay. And went to, you know, one of their maximum security prisons where there was an execution happening and was part of that media gaggle that just kind of is right outside as the execution is taking place. It's a bizarre feeling. Like, we're sitting here waiting for someone to die. Yeah. And here is they were coming out, you know, they'd have people from the prison coming out talking about, you know, the next step, you know, his last meal. I don't think he even ate. I don't know. I don't know what he ordered, but he did whatever it was. He didn't eat it. But this is them talking about prepping for the execution. There'll be correctional officers with him right now. They'll be preparing him for execution. They should begin uh, shaving his head and so forth within a few minutes. It's really maudlin. It's very procedural. That's yeah. that's the way they delivered it, you know, in my experience, was just very procedural because you can't get into the emotion of it, the humanization of the person who is being killed. Oh, believe me, the crowds that were out there, they were not. I mean, if he was out there, they would have ripped him to shreds, the thousands of people. But on January 24th, 1989, he was executed in the electric chair known as Old Sparky at 716 a.m., Cheers erupted from most of the crowd when the when the announcement was made. I'd like you to give my love to my family and friends. That was it. Uh, and then uh, they put a, a black uh, hood or a black um, uh, hood over his head, a veil, and uh, he was electrocuted. And off to your left, you could see uh, a black hooded executioner. You could only see the eyes, a little slit in the wall on the left-hand side of the room. And uh, you just see the eyes peering out. And the, the, a nod is given to the executioner, and he's executed. Uh, his, he kind of lurched back in his chair. His fist went back like that. Uh, it seemed maybe they gave him 2,000 volts for a minute or so. And as the crowd roared its approval, Ted Bundy and the people who waited so long to see him dead said their final goodbyes. 
were people out there with like frying pans and I didn't get it at, and I'm like, oh, frying like an egg or something. Oh my God. I was well, like, you know waving that, frying pans. Have you heard the story about old Sparky? You know what? When I heard it, it sounded so familiar, and that's why I included it in there. But what? Do tell. Uh, let's just say it wasn't the best piece of oh, equipment. It right. didn't always work properly. Yes. So there were times people had to be electrocuted multiple times. And I believe there were some times where it even accidentally sent sparks out. Yeah. And, and, and hit, caught on fire. Yes. Right. Caught yes. on fire and hit some of the employees who were there. So. It, it got its nickname for a reason. So I love the fact that, you know, if he had to go, that was the perfect way for him to go. <laughs> right. So Bundy was 42 and he was gone, obviously, but his evil deeds and the effects on the families lives on. I, I included this cut because it's from Bundy's former law professor at the University of Utah. And he shared his experience of meeting, you know, he, he in this interview, he would say, oh, well, students would always come up to me during one of his law lessons and say, hey, wasn't Ted Bundy, you know, one of your mm, students? So yeah. after one of these experiences where he talked about, you know, what it was like having Ted Bundy as a student, after everybody left the classroom, a student came up to him and who said that his sister was a victim of Ted Bundy. He had a somber look on his face and he said that one of the victims was evidently his sister. She had disappeared during the time young women were disappearing and that evidently Ted Bundy had killed her. Her body was never found. Of course, I sympathized greatly with him and I asked him, do you ever get over a thing like that? And he says, no, my family still is very much disturbed by the fact not only that she's gone, but that we could never find her body. The victims, feel these things for many years after a thing like that happens. And I'm very sympathetic to them. And so there's no knowing just how many women Bundy murdered. On the night before his execution, he admitted that his total might reach into triple digits. He reportedly replied, add one digit to that and you'll have it. Was he being sarcastic or did he mean 37 murders? Or did he mean 136 murders? Or did he mean 360 murders? That's Anne Rule. I think she's reading from her book. And did those murders include poor, precious Anne Marie Burr? Her mother wrote a letter to Bundy three years before he was executed, just begging for an answer. You know, did, did he kill her daughter? Mm. Dear Ted, on August 31st, 1961, just before school was to start for you and our children, there came a black rainy night with lots of heavy winds. You were 15 and had been wandering the streets late at night and peeping in windows and taking cars. I feel your first murder was our Anne Marie Burr. The bench from the backyard was used to climb in the living room. The orchard next door was a dark setting for a murder. What did you do with the tiny body? God can forgive you. With all appeals likely to be refused and soon there's nothing left for you in this world, there can still be everything good for you in the next. Your life started going wrong somewhere when you were very young. There had to be a lot of bad things happen to make you have your strong feelings of hatred. I came close to ruining my life because of my cruel actions and feeling no sorrow about them. 
A lot of strange circumstances brought help to me, or I would not have found myself, even though I knew I needed help, and my actions were getting out of control. You should have received that same help when you needed it. God can still give the help to you if you can gather together any strength you have left and try to feel a real sorrow inside for the horrors you have brought so many. You will face these horrors alone if there is no chance to be with God after you die. You have nothing more to lose in this world. By explaining your sickness, you will feel sorrow and gain everything in the next life as God promised you and all of us. Please try. There isn't much time. I am deeply sorry you did not get help when you needed it. I have not written until now because the end of life for you did not seem near until now. Will you write back to me regarding Anne-Marie? And his response was just so... He responded, though. He res- I, I'm, I'm a little bit surprised that he even did that much. Quote, again, and finally, I did not abduct your daughter. I had nothing to do with her disappearance. But he also told investigators when questioned about Burr's disappearance that, that he wouldn't have hurt a little girl and denied involvement. In 1987, Bundy confided to law enforcement that there were some murders that he would never talk about because they were committed too close to home, too close to family, or involved victims who were very young. Burr's disappearance matched all three of these categories. Bundy was never arrested or charged with any of his Washington, Oregon, Colorado, or Utah murders. But because of a Tacoma cold case detective working the Anne-Marie Burr case, his DNA got put into the system. It wasn't even in the system. And so Cloyd kind of talks about how that amazing fact came to light. It's not in the state of Washington data bank because he was never convicted of a felony in the state of Washington, even though he you know, confessed to all these murders. It's just a glitch in the law that, I mean, that he was never formally charged with a murder in Washington, so they couldn't put it in the Washington CODIS data bank. But Lindsay, when she was working for Tacoma PD, because she was looking into the uh, Emory Burr case, she contacted Florida to the prison where he was executed and see if they had blood samples or something. And they did. They had a car or something with his blood on it. So she asked them if they could have it submitted for DNA. They did. And so it's in the national data bank now, but, uh, which is good work on her because otherwise he would not be in any CODIS system if it wasn't for that. I find it incredible that he was never brought to justice for the crimes he committed here in Washington State, though. I know. I mean, that that's where it all started. That's where so many of his victims mm-hmm. were left. And I understand that he was already looking at the death penalty in Florida. But so often when there are cases that cross state boundaries, they will still prosecute because they want the families of the victims here to get their day in court, to have justice served. And it's just really sad that that never happened. Well, I know. And that he wasn't even put his DNA wasn't even put into the CODIS when, you know, technology caught up to like, hey, we can find out what happened with these other murders. One thing, though, that is really interesting, speaking of DNA, I asked Cloyd, because you and I always love talking about this, if in the future we would be able to tell if there's a psychopath marker. Hard question to answer because there's the big argument, is it nature or nurture, right? So, I mean, if it's if it's nature, then yes. If it's nurture, then no. But they've, they're doing a lot of studies right now about 
psychopaths and trying to detect psychopathic uh, personalities. I, a friend of mine who's a Canadian is a criminologist, and he was doing a study on certain personality traits that show up as psychopaths. And so he did all these different studies on these different groups of known psychopaths and known not to be psychopaths. And one of his assistants who was doing the analyzing said, what do you think of this guy? And they have some kind of chart. He goes, oh, that's definitely a psychopath. And he goes, that's you. <laughs> he goes, what? So he had all the psychopath markers, but he wasn't a psychopath. So maybe it starts out with a propensity, but there has to be that little push to make you become a psychopath. And so that really amazed him. And I thought it was fascinating too. But, you know, the thing about DNA, it's advanced more in the last two years than the previous 20 so who knows? Uh, yes, mm -hmm. yes, yes. And I love the way he put that. You have a propensity, but it takes something to push you over the edge for you to actually become a psychopath. And I wonder about the incest part of it. Mm -hmm. Now that we have his DNA, it's in the database. Have they thought about looking up? Or does it even, I mean, I suppose well, it doesn't they, really matter He was point, was all ready to do it. It's just that the, the, the one funding the test because I'm sure these are really expensive tests. Oh, yeah. And they decided to go a different route that whatever show they were putting together, you know, because as we know, so often the victims get the shaft, which is why I wanted to really include all the names of the victims that I could, because the serial killers are the ones that we talk about them and the victims get forgotten. Anyway, I think that that particular series that he was working on, they decided to to talk about the victims. And so they didn't pursue that. But yeah, I mean, it's totally available to do. And he was, Cloyd was ready to do it. They just didn't want to. <laughs> we got to find somebody with some deep pockets because yeah. I'm really curious. And I know. I know the state's not going to they put the bill for that. They weren't even going to put them in the database. I mean, and, and honestly, I get it. it. What's the point, right? Like it doesn't really change the outcome of the case at this point. And plus, you know, budgets are super tight right now. So I wouldn't expect any kind of agency to put money into doing any kind of testing on that DNA at this point. But Man, if there was somebody out there who had some deep pockets. But you think about all the different, the, the FBI behavioral unit, all the data that they collect. I mean, it, it just goes to reason that they would want, this would be one of the things that they'd want to find out. Like one of the most prolific, horrible serial killers in our nation's history. Yeah. Was there incest? What What's his background? You know, that's not just one factor. But like, yeah, it'd be interesting to know. And as Cloyd said, he's not the first one. You know, Cloyd said that. I don't know if you caught that in the interview. He's not the first one, meaning like, I don't He's know what that means. He's not the first one to have been a product of incest that yeah, was that, turned that into that a, serial a serial killer? killer. Yeah, I think that's, I don't know if that, he kind of referred to it and I just didn't go there, but I think that. Now we need to call Cloyd back. I, <laughs> another another excuse to call <laughs> Cloyd, our favorite pimp detective. Uh, we'll take any excuse we can get. All right. So what's up for next week? Imagine finding out that the man you were going to marry was wanted for murder. Not just any murder, but a heinous, despicable, disgusting, violent crime that doesn't sound anything like the man that you know. We'll find out how that one ends next week. And don't forget to check out sceneofthecrimepodcast.com to get more information on all of the stories that we share with you, photos, links, and lots more. I'm Carolyn Osorio with Kim Shepard, and this is The Scene of the Crime. <laughs>